More than 30 years ago, I walked out of a classroom in a classroom building in near downtown Dallas, crossed the street to head to the seminary housing in which Ray Jean and I lived. And I'll never forget this. It was a, a late April, early May, sunshiny, clear blue sky, pleasant temperature day. And the thought went through my mind as I crossed the street heading for home, I will never take another exam. No more papers to write. No more grades in exams and tests and classes. Keith is laughing at me. It was a wonderful day. A few days later, I was in bed reading a book as I was falling asleep and I thought, I don't like this book. It's not helpful to me. And I laid it aside. I can even tell you to this day who wrote the book and what the book was about. I was so happy to put it aside because the thought went through my mind. Nobody is going to ask me if I've read it. It was a liberating, joyous day. I was in one of my happy places. Learning and feeding my intellectual curiosities without testing. Oh, how wrong I was. (laughs) I didn't realize it then, but I read more today than I did while I was in seminary. And I write papers every week. Oh, they don't look like papers, but I have written probably millions of words, and that's not an exaggeration, of papers week by week. And there's an exam And it starts about 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And I am well aware that there's a grade at noon. And y'all are nice and kind and gracious. And you don't tell me what my grade is every week. But I know it's out there. There's always grades. And then there are the questions I get from people. Hey, pastor, have you read this? What do you think about that? What about this theological issue? What about this cultural issue and the theological ramifications? And those are pop quizzes that show up every day. (laughs) I didn't realize all the testing I was going to be facing. And then there's then there's the stuff that's just the regular tests of life, right? What do I say when I'm defrauded? What do I say when I'm criticized? How am I going to respond when... Unexpected bills arrive, like the vet bill for $113 this week, or the medical expense, or the car repair. What am I going to say when somebody cuts me off on 377, not that that's ever happened to anybody? What will my attitude be when I don't get what I want, when my desires are unmet? And my desires will be unmet, just like yours are unmet on a very regular basis. Because we all have expectations the way life will be, right? How am I going to respond? Those are tests. Trials are inevitable. Difficulty and problems are various and frequent. There is no time in the spiritual life that we can expect ease and escape from tests and trials. They're built into the fabric of our life. And the question is, how will we respond? The goal of our response, as Hebrews 11 teaches us, is to respond in dependent faith on God, trusting that He will see us through the tests and that He will take us to his, our heavenly kingdom. In Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, that we have just read, the writer provides instruction about responding to tests through the example of the life of Abraham. And here's what we're going to learn in this test of faith. That spiritual tests are inevitable. And when tested, continue to respond obediently to God's direction for you. God has given direction. God has given instruction. God has told us how we should respond in our various tests and trials and burdens. And for many of us, we've set the pattern, we've set the goal. I'm following after Jesus Christ and He already is laid out before us and we are pursuing Him and we want Him. And the writers remind us, reminding us, keep on that path. Keep marching towards 
faith in Jesus Christ. As we look at the life of Abraham from these few verses, what we will find is that the example of Abraham reveals three aspects of the tests that we will inevitably face in life. Three aspects of the tests that we will face in life. The first is given to us right at the beginning of verse 17, and it is the reality of testing. The reality of testing. We actually saw this even last week in verse 13. Remember it says not just about Abraham, but about everybody that's been named in this chapter so far. He said, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. So something had been promised to them by God and they didn't receive it. What's that? Friends, that's a test. How are you going to respond when you get a promise? When the promise comes from God, in most cases, directly in this text, they heard God speak or He said something to them. And yet the answer, the provision, was delayed. That's where Abraham was, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested. There are disappointments in life. Sometimes it's even worse than a disappointment, isn't it? I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you, a very few of you perhaps, might remember the married comedic team of George Allen and Grace, George Burns and Gracie Allen. See, I don't remember them very well. I tangle their names. On one occasion, Gracie received as a gag gift from someone a small live alligator. Now, what do you do with an alligator? She was in a hurry to get to an appointment. She didn't know what to do. So she took the alligator and she put it in her bathtub and left. And her housekeeper came while she was gone. And when she arrived back home, she found this note from her housekeeper. Dear Miss Allen. (laughs) You just know that's going to go wrong, don't you? Dear Miss Allen. Sorry, but I have quit. I don't work in houses where there is an alligator. I'd have told you this when I started, but I never thought it would come up. (laughs) Yeah. There are disappointments and surprises in life, aren't there? Many things in life that we never think would come up, and they do. In a more serious vein, Steve Hoppe in his book Sipping Saltwater writes this. Our world isn't paradise. Our jobs are stressful, taxing, and unfulfilling. Our relationships are quarrelsome. We get cancer, we break bones, we throw up and get hemorrhoids. We feel nervous, afraid, angry, and upset. The Holocaust happens, 9-11 happens, poverty, genocide, and starvation happen. Terrorists set off bombs. Our cars hit potholes. We go go years without speaking to relatives. Divorce splits families. Hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes destroy the planet. Love fades. World peace is a cliched impossibility. We get wrinkles, zits, sunspots, and bald spots. We rarely smile. We rarely laugh. We rarely let loose and play. Our minds fail us. Our hearts ache. We constantly itch for more, and eventually we die. The world, as we know it, is anything but paradise. Is that the world you live in? Uh, That's my world. Not everything on that list, obviously, but that's the world, isn't it? Disappointments, heartache, difficulty, trials, tests. And having provided a summary for us in verses 13 to 16 about the lessons of faith and what we ought to be doing as we are making our way through life and how a faithful life to Jesus Christ looks like. In verses 13 to 16, we noted last week, that's really the center point of this chapter. Now, the writer turns back to Abraham. He's already talked about Abraham, but now he's going to amplify a little bit more about Abraham. And then next week, we'll see how he pushes past Abraham to Abraham's direct descendants to remind us about one more lesson that comes from Abraham's life. And he notes, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested. He reminds us that everything that Abraham did by faith wasn't happening in the realm of the theoretical. It wasn't, it wasn't just something that he conjured up in his mind and said, in an ideal world, this is the way I'm going to live. No, he acted by faith 
when he was tested. It was, it was when he was in the crucible of life and in the trials and in the difficulties and the burdens were weighing down on him that he responded by faith. And notice particularly that phrase, when he was tested. As, as, as you read that, it almost sounds like the writer is saying it matter-of-factly. He seems to assume that this is not only a well-known story, what he's about to amplify, but the test, that the testing of Abraham was not unusual. It's just the norm. It was like, well, when he was tested, like, you know, like when testing happens. It's not unusual. Oh, your particular situation, Abraham, was hard and unusual, but there's normality in the testing. It's the way life works. Notice as well that when he says this, when he was tested, the word tested is a present tense. Abraham being tested ongoingly. And it suggests that the test, even the particular test that he's going to talk about in this section, was not in an isolated moment, but that it was protracted and it was ongoing. So keep your finger here and just go back to 22 and remind yourself of, of the nature of the testing. So Abraham was sojourning in the land of the Philistines, 21.34, 22.1. And it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham... Here I am. So nothing unusual so far. That's the way God spoke to Abraham on multiple occasions. So he was ready for it, responded immediately. Verse 2 is when the trial comes. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go into the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Okay, so that happened. Verse 1 notes on day 1. Now, he didn't dawdle, but he didn't go immediately that moment. Notice verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Now, those of you who are parents or grandparents, put yourself in that scenario. God says, take your only son and go sacrifice him. And now go to bed and sleep. So when the writer of the Hebrews said, when he was tested... The testing came in the moment, right? Are you going to obey? But the testing persisted all through that night in an ongoing way. Will you trust me? Will you obey? Will you see me as being faithful? That's not even the full extent. So he left, verse 3, verse 4, on the third day. So he travels a day, goes to bed, travels another day, goes to bed, travels that day. And now on that third day, then he says, far off, I can see the place where God told me to go. For three days, he's been traveling. Three days, he's had opportunities to turn around. Three days, he's had rolling through his head. How is God going to provide? I trust him. But how's he going to provide? And it gets better. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac. He took the wood that he was going to set underneath Isaac and put it on him for Isaac to carry to what Abraham assumed would be his own literal sacrificial offering. Abraham took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together alone. So when the writer says... He's been tested. You just see layer on layer on layer of the testing, right? It's time. It's intensity. And now Isaac asks the question. Okay, we've been going to offer a sacrifice. Wait a minute. We've got all the stuff. Verse 7. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? God will provide. They came to the place, verse 9, which God had told him. 
Abraham builds an altar, takes the wood from Isaac, arranges it on the altar, binds his son Isaac, and lays him on the altar on top of the wood. This is four days of ongoing, unrelenting, persistent testing. The test had multiple facets over multiple days, and it was ongoing. Can we use the word relentless? Certainly persistent. And that also is not unusual in our testing, is it? It's not just that something happens in our lives and we say, what am I going to do in this moment? But that things happen in our lives and we say, this is, this is a life-changing event. Life will not look the same going forward ever again as it looked ten minutes ago. And some of you have had those kinds of things. Notice this as well, 22.1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. This was directly from the hand of God. This was not accidental. This was God's purpose, God's activity, God's involvement. God was fully behind the test. But don't take that to mean when it says God tested Abraham, that God was sitting on his heavenly throne thinking, well, I wonder what Abraham's going to do. He knew what Abraham was going to do. He knows what's in our hearts, all of our hearts. The test was not for the benefit of God. For whom was the test beneficial? For Abraham. It shows Abraham what's in Abraham. It reveals to Abraham the nature of his heart, the inclination of his heart, the nature of his worship. What the man he is, what needs to change and where he needs to grow. While the writer doesn't use the word, it's probably appropriate to use the word crisis for Abraham's test, isn't it? A crisis has been defined this way. The most common characterization of a crisis involves an unstable situation of extreme danger or difficulty or a crucial stage or turning point in the course of an event. That's Abraham. Unstable situation, extreme difficulty. But from the standpoint of God, the crisis had a purpose to accomplish something spiritually. What's behind Abraham's crisis? It's a test to see if Abraham would obey even if he didn't understand God's command. And would he trust what God had previously revealed to him? I, I don't remember very much at all from seminary chapel messages now three and a half and almost four decades ago, some of the oldest ones. But I'll never forget what the president of Dallas Seminary said in one of our chapel messages. Don Campbell said this, and I quote directly, never give up in the dark what God has revealed in the light. That's Abraham. In a day of dark crisis, he could hold on to what had been revealed to him previously by God. Well, let's think about the reality of your testing and my testing. What's your crisis? What do we learn from Abraham about testing that's going to encourage and help us? One is this. Our testings do not mean that something has gone wrong. You remember 1 Corinthians 10.13, don't you? In 10.13 it says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, to mankind. It's common. 
It's not unusual. Oh, maybe your particulars, the, the people that are involved in your crisis are unusual in that, you know, none of the people in your life are omniscient except for God or omnipresent. So your particular circumstance is different and unique in that sense, but it's not unusual. It's the normality of life. And it doesn't mean that anything has gone wrong. It's the way God has designed things. Our testings also, also, excuse me, our testings also always give us an opportunity to have our heart motives revealed. A couple pages over from Hebrews, the Apostle James writes this in chapter 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Interestingly, that word testing that we have in Hebrews 11, it's the same word for temptation here in James 1. And we only know the difference between, between a testing and a temptation as to the context in the particular passage. And we understand God doesn't tempt people. He does test them. He does want them to see what's the reality of your situation, but he doesn't entice them to evil because, one thirteen, God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The testing demonstrates what's inside of me. What's going on? And some of the hardest things I've endured, some of the most difficult experiences of life that I, that, that I initially say, let me out. I don't want this. I don't like it. Make it go away, God. In the midst of that, have revealed things about me that I had no idea were there. I could give you lots of stories, but we don't have that much time. But isn't that true? When you're in a trial, the heart gets exposed. Our testings also give us an opportunity to be transformed, to be sanctified. That same chapter, James 1, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing, that's that word, the trials of your faith produce endurance. It's what strengthens you. It's what gives you fortitude. It's what enables you to to build the character and the trust and the faith in God that enables you to persist as you go through life. You remove the trials and you remove the opportunity to be built up, to be strengthened, to be equipped. Our testings also, um, the testings rather we endure, always give us the opportunity to be grateful for our identification with Christ. The, The trials that come because we are Christ followers, say, you're really in the faith. And you're suffering because you're in the faith. Rejoice. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. There it is again. It's common. It's ordinary. Don't be surprised by it. Which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, the more you suffer like Christ, keep on rejoicing. So the more you suffer, rejoice that much more so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. It gives you an opportunity to rejoice and be thankful. I'm with him. I'm reflecting His glory. Our testings also may come to us as crises, but they also demonstrate the faithfulness of God to Himself and to us. Don't think that anything uncommon has happened to you, but God is faithful, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. And, It's been pointed out that the way of escape is endurance, persistence, keeping the faith, holding on to him. Abraham's trials, Abraham's burdens were not unusual. And they're not unusual for us. And God is working good things in them. In his book about Ruth, a sweet and bitter providence, John Piper writes this. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. 
Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth, and we might add Abraham, is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. He's exactly right. So we find in Abraham's example in Hebrews 11, we find the reality of testing. We find a second aspect to these tests, and that is the answer for testing. What do you, what do you, how do you respond in a crisis? How do you respond in a test? And he tells us three different ways to respond. One is, in the middle of verse 17, obedience. Obey God's precept. How do you respond when you are tested? Obey God's precepts. The actions of Abraham as they are recounted in verse 17, going back to Genesis 22, are just stunning. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. When our children were little, we spent... And I know this is atypical from what you guys do because your children are so much better than ours were, but we spend a tremendous amount of time talking about obedience, first time, and immediate. You don't have to raise your hand if you've ever had that conversation with your four-year-old. And it just seemed to be an unrelenting, impossible task. When will they ever learn to obey? I said one time to Regine, I said to the kids with Regine in the presence, why do you do that? And she just looked at me and rolled her eyes. And later, in private, she graciously said, she didn't out me to the kids, and said, they do it for the same reason you do. Except you have the Spirit of God and they don't. She said it in a nicer tone than that. Do you notice Abraham? Do you find any hesitation anywhere in that story? Not a one. No hesitation. And the account in Genesis 22 is the same. It's immediate. God says, take him. So, verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled the donkey, took his two young men, took Isaac, split the wood, rose and went. No hesitation, no delay, no hem-hawing, no grieving, no complaining, no arguing, no debating the text of Scripture, no saying, but Genesis 12 says nothing. The passage tells us simply, verse 17 of Hebrews 11, he offered up Isaac. The word offered up is emphatic in that sentence. In Greek, they can take words and just kind of jumble them up and throw them out however they want. You can tell what the word means by its ending and its structure, its form. And here, the word that he emphasizes, and the beauty of that is you can see different things that they're emphasizing, what he wants us to pay attention to. After he says, by faith, the next word is offered up. By faith, offered up Abraham, Isaac, when he was tested. He wants us to see that, that Abraham's offering up was immediate. That, that, that it, 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 it meant for him that living by faith, he was going to follow through in obedience to God immediately. No hesitation. The word is also an intense That means that from Abraham's perspective, the sacrifice was complete. He'd already done it in his mind. You notice that? You can even kind of catch a hint of it in the English Bible. He offered up, past tense, it's done. It's finished. He's going, but all the way he's going, it's a done deal in his mind. Interestingly, at the end of the verse, notice it says he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. So he 
the writer's helping us to see two different aspects of the offering. It's complete in his head. I'm following through. I'm paying. But then he actually does follow through. He was in the process of actually doing it. It wasn't just a mental game. It was a reality. This is, this is what he was engaged in doing. It was settled in his mind. That's the first verb. And then he was actively engaged. That's the second verb. Now, somewhere in here I knew I'd have to answer the question that all of you are asking. It's not in Hebrews 11. The question isn't there. And the question's not in Genesis 22. But anytime you talk about Genesis 22 and you talk about this passage, you've got to answer the question. How could God, who later reveals laws against murder and says human sacrifice will not be accepted by him, how can he command Abraham To offer Isaac as a sacrifice. It does read like a command, doesn't it? Verse 2 of Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. Go to Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So how, how do we deal with that? It just seems incongruous. It's helpful, I think, sometimes. My mom loved to do this. She loved to read the last chapter in a book first. I said, Mom, you're ruining the whole thing. Yeah, but I know, that way I know how it ends and I know whether or not to waste my time reading the book or not. (laughs) That's helpful in reading this story. To read the end and then go back and read the beginning. And we understand from the end that God stayed the hand of Abraham. It was always God's plan to stay his hand. There was never going to be a sacrifice that was literal. It wasn't wasn't a matter of God saying, I want you to sacrifice your son and that will be pleasing to me. It was a question. Do you fear me? Do you trust me? And that's the point. Verse 12, Genesis 22. Do not stretch out your son against the lad. Don't do that. In fact, he says, do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You're not a son worshiper. You're a God worshiper. You fear me more than you delight in your son. And that's the test. The test wasn't about a literal sacrifice. The test was about a heart sacrifice and a heart desire. The account of Abraham and Isaac is to us a reminder that faithfulness is always tested in our willingness to obey God even when we can't see the answer. Will I obey Him? When I cannot understand why I should obey him or how it honors him when it doesn't seem to make sense to me. That is the nature of faith. Remember how he describes faith in verse 1 of Hebrews 11? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Listen, if anybody didn't see what was coming in Genesis 22, that's Abraham. He had no idea. Can I trust God in that way? Do I believe that God has a right to take away the things that I treasure? Am I willing to be obedient to Him even when I lose my treasure? The thing that I desire on this earth. And the test for Abraham, as it often is with our tests as well, is what is your treasure? What do you want? You want your son? Or do you want faithfulness to God? Do you fear losing your son? Or do you fear God and delight to worship him? This is a this is a whole discourse about obedience. And the answer when we are tested is always to be obedient. 
The answer for the testing is not, why is God doing this? That's the wrong question. It's, what, it's where our heart inevitably goes. Why? I don't know. The right question is what? What should I do? And that's the obedience question. There's another answer for testing. It's given to us in the middle of verse 17 and through verse 18. And it's to remember God's promises. The writer tells us in the middle of verse 17, he offered up Isaac. Who's Isaac? As if the readers don't know. He who had received the promises, that's Abraham, was offering up his only begotten son, It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants will be called. So he reminds us of all the particulars about Abraham and Isaac and the promises that God had made to Abraham about Isaac. Now notice that the text tells us he who had received the promises. That's not the promises made to Isaac, though he would get the promise as well. It's the promise that's made to Abraham about Isaac. So it's the promise that's made to Abraham, not about Isaac, or not to Isaac. And notice that when the promise had been made, verse 17, he received that promise. That is, he welcomed the promise. He cherished the promise. That word received denotes a, a cherished trust, a joyful trust, a delight in. So I've made the promise, I'm going to give you Isaac, and then from Isaac will come more children, and from them will come more children, and, and your seed will go, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through that line. And notice that the promise was not just that Abraham would have a son. He already had a son, Ishmael. It's not that he would have a son, but that he would have a son with Sarah that would fulfill the promise. And that's what the writer means when he says the only begotten son. He is the unique. That's what that word means. He is the unique son of Abraham. He's the only son by which that promise made to Abraham could be fulfilled. If Isaac dies, the promise dies. If there are no children that come from Isaac, the promise can't be fulfilled. This isn't just about Abraham. This is about the whole promise about the Abrahamic covenant and everything that would come through Abraham to Israel. And so the writer reminds us, verse 18, quoting from... Genesis 21, the chapter preceding our chapter, and says, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. There's no other way. It's got to come through Isaac. Many writers, as I was reading and studying this week, have suggested that there was significant emotional dilemma for Abraham about the promise. And then the command... To kill the promised son. And they have said things like, surely Abraham was in turmoil. You know what's interesting about that? I I mean, I I, I know humanity, right? I, I know the way the mind works. At least I know the way my mind works. And I think it's safe to say I'd have been in turmoil. You know what's interesting about this story? Moses doesn't say he's in turmoil in Genesis 22. And the writer of the Hebrews doesn't say he's in turmoil. In fact, you read the stories and you can get nothing from it except he is resolute in trusting God. One writer says it this way. The impression is that Abraham treated it as God's problem. It was for God And not for Abraham to reconcile his promise and his command. So when the command was given, Abraham promptly set about obeying it. His duty was clear. And God could safely be trusted to discharge his responsibility in the matter. 
He was resolute because he believed and remembered the promise of God. And he said, God, God cannot go back on his word. I don't know what it is, but there's a way out and God will be faithful to his promise. Now remember, the writer of the Hebrews is not writing this in isolation, is he? I mean, he's not just going back to the Old Testament. He's not just telling the cool stories of the Old Testament. He's telling the stories to invite a response. And the the people to whom he is writing are on the cusp of giving up on Jesus and saying, life is hard, we're being persecuted, we must have gotten it wrong, or we wouldn't be suffering, so let's go back to Judaism and forget about Jesus. And he's saying to them, persist with Christ. It's worthwhile. Even when tested, remember the promises of God that will keep you when you are tested. Listen, Abraham didn't know how, but he knew who, and he could trust him. Remember, when you are tested, the promises of God. And then the third answer for testing is to be confident in God's power. Verse 19. How did he come to this conclusion? I can trust him. I can follow through. I can do this. Because he considered. That's the word. Actually, it's the variation of that word that becomes our word justification. It's to reckon, to account, uh, consider that God is able. He calculated. God can do this. We say all the time. Kind of flippantly, God's got this. But I think sometimes it really is just flippant. God's got it. No. Brother, God has it. He's able. Abraham didn't just say, God's got this. He staked everything in his life on the fact that God was able. And he staked his son's life On the fact that God was able. And there's a particular thing that he considered. He considered that God is able. To raise people. Even from the dead. Now. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You believe in the resurrection. You've. You've seen and read and heard. You've had manifested the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the scriptures to you. You. You understand that. You believe that. You've, you've heard and read and seen others in the scriptures that have been resurrected as well. Abraham had no one that had been resurrected. He did have Enoch. That was kind of a unusual form of resurrection, if you will. But he'd seen no one come back from the dead. Or did he? Paul writes this. In Romans 4, without becoming weak in faith, he, Abraham, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. (laughs) He'd seen resurrection. He'd seen his dead body figuratively and Sarah's dead body figuratively, unable to propagate life, propagate life. He'd seen a resurrection of sorts. And he believed if God can bring Isaac to life through Sarah's dead womb, he can bring him to life again through a fire. Brothers and sisters, this is a a reminder to us to believe that God can act beyond our understanding and beyond our capabilities. Remember what Paul says in the benediction in 
Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. You can't even imagine anything that can approach the end of God's power and authority. Your imagination isn't big enough. So here's the question. Do you believe that God is able to meet your need? Do you believe that He is willing to fulfill His promises? That He is able to give spiritual life to your spiritually dead spouse or child or parent or neighbor? Do you believe that He is able to protect you, your life and bring you safely into His eternal kingdom? He's promised. Be confident in His power to effect His promises. Says one writer, God knows me more than I know myself. God loves me more than I love myself. God is more committed to my ultimate joy than I am. So I can trust Him. He's able. He's loving. He's trustworthy. So we see in this account the reality of testing. We see the answer for testing. One last aspect of the test. We see the reward of testing. We want to know what's the payoff? What's the benefit of trusting God? And the writer tells us that the reward was at the end, verse 19, that he also received him back as a type. That word type is talking about figurative language. It's literally the word parable. He received him back as a parable. And it's tempting as you read that to think, oh, yes, of course, it's a parable about Jesus. And that's that's possible. But in all honesty, I think that's reading something into this verse that isn't intended, certainly in the Genesis account. I think he simply means that because he considered that the offering of Isaac was complete. Remember, verse 17, he offered him up. It's a done deal. He's. My son is dead. That when the son was spared, he was figuratively dead. Now he's figuratively made alive again. It's a parable. It's a picture of God's provision. Isaac died a figurative death, is given a figurative resurrection. God will provide. God will reward faith. In fact, Genesis 22 is explicit about the reward that he receives, right? He says, okay, everything that I promised in Genesis 12 is going to come through you. Here's what we don't want to do with that. We should not infer from this that God will always keep us from dying. Death is still one out of one. Everybody's going to die. And we should not be confident that God will always replace every loss with a replacement. And we shouldn't shouldn't go to Job and say, oh, God's going to give us double blessing if we persist. He doesn't always do that. We should not always believe that we will be spared trials and troubles. That is not what the writer is intending with this. I want you to notice that word receive at the end of verse 19 he was he considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which from dead from death, from which he also received him back, received him. That word is only used about ten times in the New Testament. It's a little bit of an unusual word. It typically means something like to get back or to have restored. So Isaac was restored. To Abraham. The writer of the Hebrews uses that same word two more times. He uses it in verse 39. And all these, everybody in this chapter, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive, same word, did not have restored that which was promised. It's a reminder that there are trials on this earth, there is death, and not all. Losses are replaced on this earth. And what God has promised, though, we can be sure that we will receive it from Him. 
God is always faithful. And we see that in verse 36 of chapter 10. That's the other time that this writer uses that word. 1036. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive, have restored what was promised. There's a payback coming. It may not be here, but God will restore. God will give you. God will provide. God will sustain you. God will be faithful to His nature. And He will always do what is good and beneficial to you. Sometimes rescue in this world means transfer to the next world where we will know real blessing, real joy, real reward. And sometimes God provides restoration here as well. Just know, one way or the other, here or there, God will restore. There's no one in this world that does not suffer. Like death, suffering is one out of one. I appreciate what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor in Germany during the Nazi era, was imprisoned for his faith and then martyred. He wrote this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. That is why Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Bonhoeffer continues, if we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and we have ceased to follow him. The trials and tests are a reality of our life, but as we have seen this morning, they're also a gift from God to us. They're designed to reveal to us the nature of our hearts. They're designed to stimulate us to obey God and to believe Him, even when we can't see everything that He's doing. All of God's promises will be accomplished. So maybe you're being tested today. And as hard a test is, it's for our good because it will reveal what we believe about Him, what we believe about His Word, what we believe about the promises that we read in His Word. Have faith. He is good to fulfill His Word. Our Father, we thank You for accounts like this of extraordinary men with extraordinary faith. And even as I say that, I also recognize that from our perspective, Abraham was extraordinary, and yet he was just a man, and flawed, and struggling in other areas with sin. And yet, as we read this story, he's also unrelenting in his faith of you. Mike, his testing, his trial, his difficulty, might it prove to be an encouragement to us to persist with you, not because Abraham was faithful, but because you were faithful, and you're always faithful, and you will fulfill your promises, and you will take us to your heavenly kingdom. Whatever trouble we have here, and we will, we know that. You're faithful to take us home where we will never be disappointed. We pray these things in Christ's blessed and glorious name. Amen.